Father, you are so good. You are so incredibly powerful. You are omnipotent. You know everything. And Father, you are working so wonderfully in our lives. Thank you so much for everything you are doing. I pray that you will be with us this afternoon, that you will teach us. Father, only you can. Grant that we may learn exactly what we need to learn, the way we need to learn it. Father, grant that uh, our minds may be enlightened and that our hearts may fall deeper and deeper in love with you. I pray for these things and I praise you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Record buttons on, Julia? Wonderful. We uh, have been looking at this question. The, one of the most important questions that we can ask as Christians, how can I enjoy God? Delighting in the Almighty God. And we saw that in order for the plant of, of love to grow in our hearts, we need a seed. Not only do we need the ideal growing environment, which is provided by the word and by prayer and by uh, witnessing and those things, but we also need the seed, but the seed can only be planted in the heart that is open, fully open to God. Only where God reigns can he plant the seed of love. And then we looked at what that means in practical terms, and we realized that it comes down to choices, and sometimes we let the devil give obedience a bad name, right? We, uh, we are offered all of these wonderful gifts in Scripture. They're called commands, right? Another, another word for command is gift. Every one of God's commands is an invitation to a special blessing. And not just a temporal blessing, although there's lots of those, but it's also a blessing of prayer, a blessing of faith, and most importantly of all, every one of God's commands is an invitation to love God more. But we fight God, we hold up that umbrella, we uh, want to go our own way and do our own thing, and God says, all I need you to do is take down the umbrella and I will drown you in goodness. And that's what God wants to do for us. So self is the enemy, and like Aaron Ralston, we may need to be willing, we will need to be willing to do something drastic, radical, whatever it takes in order for God to be able to do this great work of getting rid of the flesh in us, the selfish nature, and replacing that with the, the divine nature. So that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. How can we let God give us victory over the sinful nature? And I want to remind you, if you've missed any part of the seminar so far, it's all there on the website delighting.org. And I encourage you to go, and if you want to review some of these concepts, um, and there's the workbooks are there, and there's an app there, and there's some other resources. There's actually 16 in the entire series, and we're just doing six this, these uh, two weekends. But if you want to learn more about surrender and how it works, this first part we've been focusing on what is surrender, why is it important, and how to become surrendered. And then the second part is more about what happens after surrender. So it's also very important, and uh, I encourage you to check that out. But how do we get victory over flesh? Carl Grant was uh, representing the United States at a table, uh, table tennis tournament in Osaka, Japan. And uh, 
he, just before the tournament, the night before the tournament, he met a guy from the Chinese delegation, and they struck up a little bit of a conversation, and they decided, let's play a quick game of table tennis together. And uh, Carl said to himself, I'm going to beat this guy. I mean, I know that Chinese are the best table tennis players in the world, but this is unofficial. I'm going to just, I'm going to put my all into this, and I'm going to beat this guy. And he did. He put every ounce of energy he had into that game, and he just barely squeaked a win past this guy from the Chinese delegation. He was so happy. He went back to his uh, teammates that night. He says, you'll never guess what happened. I just played a uh, table tennis game with one of the people from the Chinese de delegation, and I beat him. And you know what they said? I doubt it. You know, you just don't beat the people from the Chinese delegation. They are that good at table tennis. No, no, I did. I'll prove it to you. The next day, he took them over to the, the area in the arena where the Chinese were, and he says, hey, I don't see the guy I played last night right here yet, but I played him last night, and I beat him, and I just want to prove to my teammates that I did. And you know what the guy, the Chinese player said? He says, I doubt it. Just then, the guy that he played came, came forward, came towards them, and he excitedly pointed out, that's him, that's him, that's the guy I played last night. He can tell you. And the Chinese player says, oh, that's Mr. Chen. He's our cook. <laughs> you know, self laughs at us if we even think about being victorious over self in our own power. Self laughs at us. You may be able to beat the cook, but you're no competition to the real player. Self laughs at us. Self is the enemy we most need to fear. Self is intertwined around every fiber of our being. We are by nature addicted to self. And that is why everyone who enters the pearly gates of the city of God will enter there as a conqueror and his greatest conquest will have been the conquest of self. The greatest conquest that you and I will ever make in this life is the conquest of self. So how can we fight self? Well, the bad news is we're pretty stuck. We are of flesh, and Jesus says that that which is of flesh is flesh, and it will always be flesh, and there is no way to patch up the flesh. Bad news, game over, go home, nothing to be done, right? No, the wonderful news is there is something called the new birth, right? Because that which is of the flesh is flesh, but that which is of the spirit is spirit. And so the key to getting victory over the flesh is to be reborn of the spirit. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know yet, right? We know that we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We know that he is the key to our survival in the Christian life. We all have a flesh problem, and the, the solution to this flesh problem is not to patch it up. The solution is to be born again. And it makes sense, you know, in a lot of ways. Because before you were born again, before you were converted, the Holy Spirit is working on you from the outside. But after you give yourself to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you, and works and lives in you, and the difference is transformational. Before we give ourselves wholly to Jesus, we are walking on the broad road and God has limited access to us. After we give our lives wholeheartedly to God, we are walking the narrow way and it's the devil who has limited access to us. My friends, the difference is transformational. We have to have 
the Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus was um, resurrected and was going back to heaven, he, he visited with some of his disciples for a while, but he was really in a hurry to get back to heaven. You remember that? He wanted to get back to heaven. Why was it? Was it because he was so sick of earth he just couldn't stand it anymore? No. Was it because he just couldn't wait to get back to heaven to see his father and the angels? Of course, that's true. But why was he in such a hurry to get back to heaven? The answer is, is because he wanted to give you and I a gift. A special gift that he could not give us until he had returned. And that is the gift that God is still longing to give you and I today. An American and an Englishman were standing at Niagara Falls one day. And the American said to the, his friend, he said, Do you want to see the greatest unused power in the world today? Englishman said, sure. So they walked down the path, and they looked up at the Niagara Falls, at this wall, this massive wall of water coming over the falls, and, it, and the American said to his friend, that is the greatest unused power in the world today. You know what his friend said, the Englishman? He said, not so, my friend. The greatest power, the greatest unused power in the world today is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Isn't that so true? The Holy Spirit is the greatest unused power in the world today. And yet we know, we know we need the Holy Spirit so much for everything. We need him to guide us. We need him to teach us truth, to make us holy, to convict us of sin, to, to comfort us, to speak through us. We need the love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and joy and gentleness and self-control. We need the gifts of the Spirit, wisdom and knowledge and faith and helps and apostleship and prophecy and tongues and administration and healing and teaching and miracles. And that's just a short list. We need the Holy Spirit. Desperately, we need the Holy Spirit. It is the greatest unused power in the world today. Trying to live the Christian life without an a indwelling Holy Spirit is like trying to start a lawnmower without a spark plug. You're going to put a lot of energy into that. You're going to end up with a sore arm, and that's all you're going to get. There is no other possible scenario. Trying to live the Christian life with, um, without the Holy Spirit is like a caterpillar trying to fly by flapping its legs. It's not going to happen. If the caterpillar wants to fly, what does it need to do? It needs to die. It needs to be die. It needs to die and be born again. Okay, so that's the introduction. So far, so good. I think we all agree. This is how, what we desperately need. The question then that is so often asked throughout the church today that we have such a terrible time sometimes answering is how... How can we get the Holy Spirit? We pray for the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit. We're not always willing to receive the Holy Spirit. How can we receive the Holy Spirit? The answer is very simple. If we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we have to consent to being emptied of self. Make sense? The Holy Spirit is the Almighty God. He does not come into our house and make it into a temple unless He is the only one on the throne of our life. He does not share temple space with self. It's an all or nothing thing. The only prerequisite to receiving the Holy Spirit is opening ourselves up wholeheartedly, unreservedly, unresistingly, unrelentingly to God so that He can give us the Holy Spirit. He wants to give us the Holy Spirit more than the most loving Father wants to feed His children and the only thing getting in His way is us. We just have to let Him. So, that leads us to the conclusion that self is the problem. The Holy Spirit 
is the solution and surrender is the key. Self is the problem. This is, this, is, this is the summary of the whole Christian life here. Self is the problem. It's the greatest enemy, the, the enemy we most need to fear. The Holy Spirit is the only solution. That rebirth is, is the only way it's going to happen. And surrender is the way that we can let God fill us with himself. Why is surrender so important? How is surrender the key? It's because of this basic principle that I would like for you to think about seriously. If we just understood this basic principle of the great controversy, it would revolutionize, I think, our understanding of the Bible and of how God works. This is it. Only God can do it. Only you and I can let him. If we just understood and really embraced that principle, no matter what it is, any good thing that we need or want, only God can do it. Only God can give us faith, right? Only God can give us wisdom. Only God can give us any of the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Only God can give us salvation. Only God can give us motivation. Only God can, only God can do it. Anything good in the Christian life, only God can do it. No matter what it is, only God can do it. But, and here's the rub, only you and I can let him. So if we're not receiving the good that God wants us to receive, there's only one reason for that. If we're not filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit right now, there's only one reason for that. It's because we are not willing to let God do whatever it takes. The Father giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. So with the followers of Christ, we can receive of heaven's light only as we are willing to be what? Emptied of self. We cannot discern the character of God or accept Christ by faith unless we consent to the bringing into captivity of most of our thoughts. Is that what it says? Every thought. We must consent to the bringing into captivity of every thought to the obedience of Christ. To all, to how many? To all who do this, the Holy Spirit is given without measure. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the only solution, and surrender is the key. To look at surrender and a little bit more about why it's so important, I'd like to do very quickly, I'd like to share with you seven backbone elements of the Christian life. If you look at the Christian life, if you were to look at a Christian who was everywhere that God wanted him to be, and you looked at the major elements in that Christian walk, what would it look like? Well, first of all, it starts with repentance. It all has to start with repentance. It has to recognize, we have to recognize our need so that we are driven to our Savior and that we are willing to do the next thing, which is surrender. That, re, that, that revulsion of sin helps us to um, want to let God do whatever it takes to get rid of the sin in us. That surrender then leads to the next um, part of the Christian life, which is justification. In other words, Jesus covers us with his robe of righteousness. But notice, that justification can't happen until we surrender fully, wholeheartedly to, to Jesus. Because you can't say, Lord, cover me but my foot. Cover me with your robe of righteousness, but leave my foot out. You can't do that. Christ's robe of righteousness either covers us or it doesn't. Justification and surrender are what are required to make a temple. Surrender is the emptying of self and 
Justification is the making holy, Jesus covering us and working in us, and that makes us a temple in which the Holy Spirit can come and dwell. And then, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he does this miraculous thing called conversion, and the first result of that conversion is love, right? It's the first fruit of the Spirit. What does love do for us? Love is the great motivator for obedience. Love is the only true motivation for obedience. Notice, salvation happens there at justification. So, obedience is not about salvation. Salvation's already happened. What does obedience do for us? What part, what role does obedience play in the Christian life? We looked at this a little bit last weekend. The purpose of obedience is sanctification. God uses our obedience to sanctify us. He works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, and in doing his good pleasure, he is able to make us holy, make us more and more like Jesus. That's the sanctification process. And, of course, we're missing two vital elements in this picture of the Christian life. Those two vital elements are faith and grace. Where do faith and grace come in, in this uh, backbone? Well, my friends, it's all grace. <laughs> it's all grace, right? Repentance is grace. Surrender is grace. Justification is grace. Holy Spirit is grace. Love is grace. Obedience is grace. Sanctification is grace. It's all grace. Only God can do it. It's grace. Where does faith come in? Faith is the channel through which all this, this grace flows. So, now I want you to notice something interesting about this backbone of the Christian life. Surrender happens there low down in the process, fairly at the beginning of the process. And, and something interesting about surrender, this is the first major place in this process where we use our power of choice. You notice that? The second major place is obedience. Both of surrender and obedience are places where our power of choice come in very handy. We do not uh, um, do any other process. We have, it's Jesus who sanctifies us, Jesus who justifies us, Jesus who fills us with his Holy Spirit. That's not part of our, our free will, except that we let him. Surrender is where we let him. So, if you were the devil, and you were going to try to sidetrack God's true people, and, and um, derail them, where would you start? Would you start right there, where our free will comes in, where our power of choice comes in? And what do you think happens if the devil can succeed in derailing us from this important surrender? What do you think happens to a Christian life? Any idea of what happens? Yeah, yeah, it falls apart. My friends, this is a photograph of my sincere Christian experience for the first 30 years after my baptism, right here. This is a photograph. Because I never understood surrender. I never understood what it was. I thought I had done it, but I realized after 30 years that I had actually been holding things back from God. Little things. I had not given myself wholeheartedly to him, and I didn't even realize it. That was what the devil did to me because of that. So that leads us back to our key phrase this afternoon. Let's read this all out loud together, shall we? Only God can do it. Only I can let him. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. Surrender is the key. If you can memorize those five sentences, I believe it can revolutionize your Christian experience. If you can take those to heart and really say, okay, Lord, I want to let you. No matter what it takes, no matter what choice it is, no matter what, I want to let you because I know that only you can do it. I'm not a legalist. I'm not trying to earn anything. I realize that only you can do it. And I realize that I want to let you, because self is my problem, and I understand that. And I know that the Holy Spirit is the only solution to be reborn again in that new creation, and that surrender is the only way that's going to happen. That's the summary right there. 
<coughs> we are told that if all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that this morning. That is so important for us to understand. Jesus longs to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Eagerly, more than we can imagine. But, unfortunately, all are not willing. In fact, it's very rare for people to be willing to let God do whatever it takes to fill them with the Holy Spirit. We are told that the new birth is a rare experience in this age of the, of the world. This is the reason why there are so many perplexities in the world. Is that what it says? No, this is the reason why there are so many perplexities in the churches. Many, so many, who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They have been baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to newness of life in Christ. My friends, that is my story. I was baptized around the age of 11 or 12. I did not understand what I was getting into. I had no conception of this thing about surrender. I was buried alive, and I stayed alive for the next 30 years, three decades. Often conversion is misunderstood. Many who speak to others of the need of a new heart do not themselves know what is meant by these words. The youth especially stumble over this phrase, a new heart. They do not know what it means. They look for a special change to take place where? In their feelings. This they term conversion. Over this error, thousands have stumbled to ruin, not understanding the expression, you must be born again. She goes on. Satan leads people to think that because they have felt a rapture of feeling that they are converted. But the experience it does not change. Their actions are the same as they were before. Their lives show no good fruit. They pray often and long and are constantly referring to the what? The feelings they had at such a time, but they do not live the new life. They are deceived. Their experience goes no deeper than feelings. And this was true in my experience also. I thought that these spiritual highs that I was having was conversion. I did not realize that I really never was converted until the age of 44. I'm pretty convinced of that. And even if I was converted, I had lost it somewhere along the way. Conversion is rare, it's hard fought, hard won, and easily lost. And that's something that we need to be aware of. Because we are a church today who does not feel our need for surrender. We are rich and in need of nothing and do not realize that we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Right? We have so many blessings. We have the, uh, the understanding of the great controversy. We have the understanding of the, uh, Daniel and Revelation. We have all these wonderful things. We have the Sabbath. We have incredible blessings from God. But sometimes those blessings keep us from recognizing our deep need, personally. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. Surrender is the key. Okay? So now let's get to brass tacks. Let's talk in practical terms about surrender. I want to start by asking the question, what is surrender? Have you ever thought about that? If somebody came to you, uh, a friend of yours came to you and said, hey, in one sentence, tell me what surrender is. Could you give them a true, concise, accurate definition of surrender in one sentence? Because, you know, this word... Surrender is used quite a bit, right? We hear the word a lot. In, in, in Christian circles, we talk a lot about surrender, but we don't necessarily always say a lot about it. What is it? 
How does it work? What does it look like in practical terms in my life? How can I be surrendered? How can I become surrendered? How can I stay surrendered? All these questions and more we need to understand so that we can give ourselves wholeheartedly to God. And one of my favorite definitions of surrender comes from the story of Charles Finney. He was a noted revivalist in the 1900s. And uh, one day after one of his revival meetings, a guy, a lawyer, came to him and gave him an official-looking document. And he didn't have time to look at it then, but later on he looked at it. And what it was was a stop-claim deed to this man's life in favor of Jesus. He had actually filled out a legal form saying, I stop all claim to my life, to my thoughts, to my words, to my actions, to my money, to my time, to my everything. Every cell of my body, every cent of my money, every second of my time, every syllable from my mouth, every synapse in my brain, it's all God's. That's surrender. Another one of my favorite definitions of surrender that I've shared several times already is drowning in the will of the Almighty. Do you know why I like this definition of surrender so much? It's because drowning is so easy and natural for us. Right? <laughs> no, I hope not. No, we fight drowning, don't we? Yeah. <clears throat> and that's the same way with surrender. It's, it's hard. It's one of the most challenging decisions we'll ever have to make, but by God's grace we can. And of course, another one that I've shared with you several times is surrender is getting out of God's way so that he can be almighty God in us. I love that thought. I love the idea of just letting God be God, rather than limiting to ourselves. But perhaps a better definition in some ways, a more complete formal definition in one sentence is this. Surrender is a spirit-inspired, spirit-enabled, settled commitment to give God all my choices in every area of my life all the time. I like this definition for several reasons, and I've highlighted the reasons. One is only God can do it, right? Only God can accomplish that surrender in our lives. It has to be spirit-inspired and spirit-enabled. Two, I like this idea of the settled commitment. A settled commitment is not something that happens during a spiritual uh, high. Spiritual highs make you feel good, but they don't lead to settled commitments. In fact, the best time to surrender yourself to Jesus is not when you're on a spiritual high some Sabbath morning. The best time to surrender is when you are stone cold sober emotionally. You've counted the costs, you know what you're getting into, and you say, Lord, I'm going to let you do it anyway. That leads to a settled commitment, and a settled commitment doesn't come Sabbath morning and leave by Sabbath night, which was my experience for most of my life. A settled commitment sticks when you surrender yourself wholly to Jesus, you don't give that up easily. It's hard fought, hard won, and, and more difficult lost. Yes, it can happen, and it does happen. And I can share some testimonies of my own life where it has happened. And matter of fact, I do share uh, in number 10, uh, staying dead on my website. If you want to know my experience of falling, my, my uh, embarrassing experience, it's there for everybody to see. <coughs> Perhaps one reason why it's so difficult to understand surrender is that it is both an event and a process. It is an event in that there is a choice that must be made. It is an all or nothing, all at once choice to say, Lord, I commit to you all of my choices, all of my life, all of my everything, I commit it to you. That's the event of surrender. But surrender doesn't stop there. It's also a process. It is actually a process of continually daily 
hour by hour, minute by minute, growing in that surrender, learning what that surrender means, and reconsecrating our lives to Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross at least once a week. No, daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. <coughs> Marriage is a good analo an analogy of surrender, I think, because it also has an event and a process, right? The event is the marriage ceremony. But for those of you who have been married, you realize that the event of surrender is not the end. I mean, of marriage is not the end, right? Nor is it necessarily even the hardest part. Yes, it takes a lot to get to that event, but once you get there, you still have a lot of work to do. You realize that it is a daily love-growing experience. Getting to know each other better, understanding each other, working together as a team, raising children, all kinds of things, right, that are part of that, that um, process of marriage. But, my friends, neither surrender nor marriage is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. Let me say that again. Neither surrender nor marriage is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. If I were to stand up at the altar and face my bride-to-be and say, Honey, I love you. I will commit myself 80% to you. How well do you think that would go over? Yeah, any woman worth marrying would be finding the nearest exit, right? And if I called out to her, okay, okay, 90%, 90%, would that help at all? No, it's 100%. It's all or nothing. And yes, some, somehow, I don't understand exactly how this happened, but in the Christian church, we feel like it's okay to commit adultery in front of our God. We commit sins that we know are, are not his choices, and we say, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. We take our power of choice for granted. And we say, Lord, I know this isn't your will, but I'm doing it anyway because I want to. I hope you don't mind. But surrender is not a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good. This is a wonderful passage in Isaiah. In this passage, there are two very important verbs that I want to highlight. Can you find them? I'll give you a hint. They're highlighted in blue. Okay? Found them. All right, good. One of these verbs is an event verb, and the other verb is a process verb. Can you, can you see that? Cease. Stop. No further. You come to the edge of the cliff. You don't go any further. You stop. You cease. By God's grace, that's possible. And we talk about that more in the series later on. We won't do it today. But um, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Learn is the process of God showing us more and more what his will is. And for us embracing that will and say, okay, Lord, if that's your will, I didn't know that. I didn't even think about that. But I will gladly surrender that to you. I will give that to you. I will go your way. I will let you have it. Surrender is all or nothing and all at once. That's a basic principle of surrender that I want to make sure that we, we really get. Surrender is all or nothing all at once. What does that mean? That simply means that we don't just surrender part of our life now and then part of it later. We can't say to God, hey, Lord, I need to surrender myself to you and I'm willing to do this, but I'll give you 80% of it now and then we'll work on the other 20% later. That's not going to work. 
The only way the surrender works is when we say, Lord, I can't do it. I know I need it, but I'm willing to give you 100%. And God says, perfect. That's all I need. It's all at once. You know, for most of my life, I thought it was okay to sin. I thought it was expected to sin. Even known sins. I would say, hey, you know, this is the Christian life. This is normal. Everybody around me is doing it. What I'll do is I'll do this. This is, this is what I thought the Christian life and surrender meant. I will surrender God my one or two worst sins, and then he will work on those that give me victory, and then I'll say, thank you, Lord, and I'll give him my next one or two worst sins, and then we'll keep doing that until I get to my little ones. That's what I thought surrender was all about. And that's not what it's all about. It is all or nothing all at once. As a matter of fact, until you're faithful in the little things, he can't make you faithful in the what? The big things. It's only when, God, when we give God the things we can give Him that He can take care of the things that we can't give Him. The little things are the important ones. They're the start of the process, not the end of the process. We give God all of our choices. We give God all of our life. We say, Lord, I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Only you can do it. Only you can do any good thing in me. And then we let God do it. 100% all the time. Somebody once made the startlingly obvious statement that large chasms are not crossed by a series of small jumps. It makes sense, right? If this guy were to stand up here on the, top, on the edge of this canyon and say, hey, I want to jump over it, and I'm going to do it by making a series of small jumps. So he gets to the edge, and he makes his first small jump. What happens? Splat. Game over. No other chance. It's, it's, that's it. Right? And surrender is the same way. It's not made by a series of small jumps. It is a 100% leap of faith saying, Lord, I give you myself. I die in your arms gladly and willingly. It is a 100% leap of faith. There are some who seem to be always seeking for the heavenly pearl. But they do not make an entire surrender of their wrong habits. They do not die to self that Christ may live in them. Therefore, they do not find the precious pearl. They have not overcome the unholy ambition and their love for worldly attractions. Do you see yourself in the statement? I know that I see myself as, clean, as plain as day. For most of my Christian life, I did not make an entire surrender. I was clinging to these worldly things. And she goes on. They do not take up the, the cross and follow Christ in the path of self-denial and sacrifice. Almost Christians, yet not fully Christians. They seem near the kingdom of heaven, but they cannot enter there. Almost, but not wholly saved, means to be not almost, but wholly lost. Almost, but not wholly saved, means to be not almost, but wholly lost. My friends, the Christian life is a all or nothing, all at once surrender. That's the only option. That's option A, and there is no option B. And little things make a big difference. You hold back one little choice from God. That's all it takes. 99.9999% is not enough. Surrender won't work in, those, in that environment. It's got to be 100%. On February 1, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated over Texas and Louisiana as it was coming in for a landing. And the reason why it disintegrated into a thousand different pieces is that 15 days earlier, during launch, a piece of foam the size of a suitcase had fallen off of the main booster shuttle the shuttle booster tank, and had hit the leading edge of the wing on the space shuttle and had created a little hole in that wing. And nothing happened. Nothing terrible happened. The space shuttle made it to space, no problem. It did all of its work there in space. They got 
to the International Space Station and did all their work and got everything back and everything was great. No problem. Until it tried to land. And then the intense force of the gases in the atmosphere with that intense speed made a plasma that was actually a plasma torch that went into that hole and melted the wing from the inside. And the whole space shuttle was destroyed because of that little hole. You think little things are important? In the Christian life, it only takes one little crack for the devil to slither through, and he will. And he will come in, and he will undo much of the good work that God is trying, desperately trying, to do in our hearts. And you know what the real tragedy about this space shuttle story is? The real tragedy is that NASA knew that foam was coming off. NASA had seen this happen on four other flights. And they said, well, you know, that's a problem, but it didn't hurt anything yet. And so they were kind of hoping that it wouldn't hurt anything. They knew it was wrong. They knew it was bad. But they kept on doing it. And the same thing had happened 17 years earlier with the spaceship Challenger. The spaceship Challenger blew up on takeoff because one of its rings in the solid rocket booster on the side, one of its rings had been uh, compromised and the, um, the powerful uh, force of the flame had actually come through the ring and out the side of the, the booster and actually um, hit the external tank and destroyed the space shuttle on takeoff. And NASA knew that this was happening. They knew that these, these O-rings were getting compromised. They had taken them, uh, after they, they retrieved them from the ocean, they would take them and analyze them and they'd say, hey, look, this almost got through. But it never got through. Well, maybe it'll be okay. It hasn't gotten through yet. It won't be a problem. It won't get through. Until it did. So a sociologist went into NASA to try to figure out what was happening, why they knew these things were happening, and yet they were doing them anyway. And she, she coined a new term called normalization of deviance. In other words, they knew that what they were doing was not good, but they made it normal. They made it expected. We have a spiritual term for normalization of deviance called lukewarm Laodicean Christianity. Right? The whole, the whole premise of lukewarm Christianity is, oh, wow, you know, everybody's doing it. It's not that big of a deal. It's bad. Yes, we know it's bad. But it's not that big of a deal. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. That normalization of deviance, my friends, is killing Christianity. It is epidemic in our, in our church today. We are somehow convinced that it's okay to give God only 99.99999% of our lives. And don't realize that it's because of that 0.00001% that God is not able to take over. That he's not able to be Lord and master of our lives. We are deceived. We have this power of choice, and yet sometimes we take this power for granted. Sometimes we, we, we make choices just because, well, our peers are doing it, our parents are doing it, maybe even our pastors are doing it. But is that any reason to make a choice? Or should we be asking God, Lord, what is your choice here? What's the best choice I can give you? Someone once said that if God is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And that's very true. Ellen White puts it this way. We do not belong to Christ unless we are his, what? Holy. We do not belong to Christ unless we are his holy. In another place she says, let none deceive themselves with the belief that they can become holy while willfully violating, how many? One of God's requirements. The commission of a known sin 
silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic? Why would we let one known sin, even a tiny little one, why would we let it silence the witnessing voice of the Holy Spirit and separate our soul from God? We should not stand for that. And yet this is the secret of my spiritual poverty because I didn't understand this. I was, my Christian life was literally destroyed for lack of knowledge. And when Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, it literally happened in my life that when I finally figured it out that surrender is 100%, all or nothing, all at once, God was finally able to transform my life. I'll be sharing my testimony in just a few minutes on that one. <clears throat> a seven-year-old boy whose name was, and this is true, ironically, his name was Christian. Seven-year-old boy named Christian, he wrote to Santa, and he said this, How bad can I be before I lose my presence? You know, we laugh at that, but do we ever say the same thing to God? Oh, well, this isn't a salvation issue. Do we ever say to God, how bad can I be and still be saved? Are we asking God how much we can get away with? Is that our relationship with him? Lord, how much can I get away with? I want to do this, and I want to eat this, and I want to watch this, and I want to say this, and I want to do this. How much of that can I do and still get, you know, be saved? Is that what we're asking God? Or are we saying, Lord, I love you, and I want to please you with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. Let me give you my best choices in every area of my life. What is our, our attitude towards our relationship with God? Which one of those is it? How much can I get away with, or how much can I give God? The Holy Spirit is the power of the Christian life. Amen. He is the only way that anything good is ever going to happen in our life. And when we see the hopelessness of our life without the Holy Spirit, we gladly cry out, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Isn't that a wonderful passage? I would encourage you to memorize that one and to repeat it to yourself over and over again. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Only God can do it. Only I can let him. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. Surrender is the key. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much again for surrender. What a, a privilege it is to give ourselves to you, to let you have it. Father, thank you so much that you work in us powerfully to bring us to the place where we are willing and able to give you all of our lives, all or nothing, all at once. Father, you are so good, so powerful. We pray for this blessing and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.